When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Good morning, good afternoon, and good night. And welcome to T-Pain's Nappy Boy Radio Podcast. The most fun you'll ever listen to while you're folding your clothes. Now let's get this straight. This is not your average podcast. T-Pain's Nappy Boy Radio is super fun, super crazy. It's pretty much an in-your-face conversation. That's the good thing about us. We don't do interviews. We do conversations. All of my guests, all of my co-hosts, we chill. We drink, we play games, we have the song of the week, we have the creative curse word of the week, as long as you're having fun as our guest. Speaking of guests, each week I'm going to go through my whole contact list and dive head first into the world of music, gaming, exotic cars, tech, strippers probably, doctors probably, probably strippers that are only stripping so they can pay for tuition to become a doctor. You never know. My wife is a certified bartender. She'll make you a drink while you're here. We'll get you drunk and make you play VR after. It's a lot going on, but that's what it's all about over here at T-Pain's Nappy Boy Radio Podcast. See you soon, baby! Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is a first-time one, and one I'm excited about, Caitlin Cooper of Indie Cornrows, which is the SB Nation Pacers blog. I've really liked her insight over the year and including in these playoffs. And so we go in-depth on the Indiana Pacers, their roster, their coaching search, where the franchise is, where they're going. And I really love the conversation. Hope you will enjoy it too. Podcast runs about an hour, and here you go. Well, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. There are a lot of different ways that we could potentially start on the Pacers, and I I was trying to think of it. And for me, the way that I thought of was about a year ago, a little over a year ago, you, you you did some pieces about kind of what the Pacers should be looking for in their next coach. And now we're a year later, and the Pacers have to go through that process again. And instead of starting with, like, the coach itself, it's just what has happened over the last year of Pacers basketball that... If anything, that has changed what you think the organization should be looking for in now their next next coach. Yeah, that's a very good question. I mean, I feel like over the last year and a half, I say this all the time, but that I've I've written about like eight different Pacer teams. <laughs> I mean, between between Jeremy Lamb was starting a year ago in place of Victor before Victor came back from injury, then like a diluted version of Victor's back, and then you're trading Victor, and then you don't have Karras, and then TJ Warren's hurt. When they were in the bubble, they didn't have Sabonis, and it was more of a you know drive and kick with Miles Turner at the five, and then at the close this year, Miles Turner's injured. Like just so many different changes, plus just the shift between Nate McMillan's system and Nate Bjorker, and so. Um, I think it would shift a little bit because a year ago after Nate McMillan was removed, I mean, they said that their emphasis was on modernizing the offense and modernizing, um, finding a modern communicator as well. So it seems like what's been reported about Nate Bjorken, that that latter portion, as far as the human management and the micromanaging, they didn't quite hit the nail on the head there. But I did think that Nate Bjorken did some good things for them offensively, added more weak side movement than you would have seen under Nate McMillan. Um, just a lot more motion in general and how many more options they had in their sets. It wasn't so one-dimensional, one-and-done. So 
as you say, when I was writing all those profiles last year, I wrote almost all of them from the perspective of offense. And now after having seen them go through, you know, this Raptor styling style whirling approach defensively, plus the differences of just having Karis Levert in the starting lineup versus some of what you could do with Victor defensively, I think they need to answer some of that. But I don't think it should go. I mean, they use this phrase a lot that they need to return to their hard hat and lunch pail mentality in terms of like effort and some of the slippage they had on defense this year. And I agree with that, but I'm not so sure the NBA is in a place where you want to go back to being like this defense first team and and winning gritty and ugly either. So I think it needs to be a balance, if that makes sense. I I do think that makes sense. And on the point of modernizing the offense, this is something I I talked about a little bit during the year, but I thought was I thought was really fascinating. So the Pacers last in in 2019-20 actually had a higher effective field goal percentage than they did in 2020-21. But so you gotta go, oh, the offense Bjork and it got worse and all that. But what was so interesting is that they took shots from much more efficient places. It was just that some of the some of the areas where they were, you know, where where teams shoot from, they just weren't quite as they didn't make as many shots. And so I think that the way that I think about that is that kind of shooting from the right places offset some of what would have been bigger issues. And a lot of that is, you know, as you brought up, this team changed personnel and availability, which is such an important part of it over the course of the season. Right. I mean, absolutely. I mean, one little example I would give is, I mean, even in what they were doing with the mid-range was somewhat different um, as far as you're saying with the effective field goal percentage. Because, you know, if, if Miles and, and Sabonis, first of all, they got a lot more out of the role last year. I mean, Sabonis yes. was a lot of more of his offense was coming out of the post. And I would say that, Part of the reasoning for that was they're in the middle portion of the season. They only had one downhill option in Malcolm Brogdon. And while he hit decently on pull-up threes, that's not really so much his game in terms of creating separation. So a lot of teams were going under against Malcolm Brogdon. And then they have a starting lineup where it's Doug and Doug McDermott, Justin Holliday, and Miles Turner. And those guys aren't really going to create offense and get to the rim either. So if teams are ducking under, then some of their pick and roll stuff was neutered and a lot of their offense was predicated on um, rim frequency and their ability to get into the paint. So then it was like Sabonis is diving to the basket and it took a little bit a little bit for Nate Bjorkman to kind of institute some of the split cuts that they needed to get out of that. So that's one aspect of it. But because they were getting less out of the role in general, um, there'd be times where Sabonis might get pushed out a little bit from the post and then he's taking like a mid-range face-up jumper, which he still needs to perfect. I mean, not even perfect. He just wasn't super efficient with it, but he did add some skills where he might go off of one leg or create a little bit more separation. But before those mid-range shots under McMillan would have been, I'm popping to mid-range. And now under Nate Bjorkman, they're having Miles and Sabonis pop to three. So it is like positioning-wise, it was opening up more, but neither one of them hit the three all that well, neither did Goga Batadze. So as you say, like the efficiency was different, but it might, it opened up different, their ability to get to the basket a little bit more with some of the ways that Bjorkman was scheming it. Right. And that, and that's, what's so interesting about from the offensive side, and we'll get to the defensive part of it in terms of how you replace Nate Bjorkman is obviously every coach that comes in is going to have their own, their own themes, but, and their own, you know, nuances to it. But what I, what has been interesting for me kind of piecing together what that coach should be is that I hope they don't take offensively the wrong lessons in terms of who they hire, because who they hire is going to be so important in that, and you know they'll they'll incorporate it. Is that yeah? In, in certain ways, the offense was was worse, you know, like quote unquote, you know, in in those respects, like they were they were seventeenth and fourteenth, but you know, not that big a difference. But 
I hope that they don't go, well, you know, we, like you were saying, they, they got a little bit better on offense, but they were a lot worse on defense. But to me, that wasn't about like, let's use the process as the term there. Like the, right. they were moving in the correct direction. And for a variety of reasons, I'm not saying that Nate Bjorkman was the right coach and that everything like that, like there's, as, as you know, there are a lot more complicated things going on in this circumstance. But I hope that they don't look at what happened and also, you know, in some ways, Nate McMillan's success with the Atlanta Hawks and say, oh, we definitely need to go hard back that direction because I think that would be misinterpreting what happened in the 2020-21 season. Oh, and I agree. I mean, just on the sense that you didn't have your number one scorer from the exactly. prior season. I mean, TJ Warren wasn't there. And I mean, some of the stuff I said with Sabonis there, like you're having to funnel more stuff there because they basically had two playmakers on the court, not oh. counting TJ McConnell, who was coming off the bench. Like they just didn't have a lot of guys who could create shots for themselves or for other people. So you add back in TJ Warren and having Karis LeVert for more of the season. And I think some of that gets better. But I mean, some of the Nate McMillan stuff, I think, gets a little bit warped because when they were in the bubble against Miami, Sabonis wasn't there. So Miami's switching everything. And then when TJ Warren, bubble Warren's getting the ball, they're, they're really flooding strong side to him. And there just wasn't anybody like they got a lot of criticism because they kept isolating against Bam Adebayo, which I don't think was a good form of offense. But when they weren't isolating directly against Bam, they weren't doing anything to occupy him on the weak side. They, he didn't care. Like if Miles Turner shot a three, it was good if Miles could make that, but it was just free points and he wasn't reacting to it. There wasn't any gravity holding him there. I think Sabonis would have made some differences there, but also Nate McMillan um, holds some of that and that it was hitchy. They would run like one one thing and they couldn't get to the next action. Now I will say um, when you watch Nate McMillan coach the Hawks in the playoffs like I've seen him do things with Trey Young and in those teams that he just didn't do in the series that he coached for the Pacers like clear back when the Pacers went seven games against the Cavs and Victor Oladipo they you know the Cavs are escalating from soft traps to hard traps and forcing the ball out of his hands they like would not set a ram screen to try to slow down the guy to be able to trap Victor like that was not a counter that he went to and now I'm watching Nate McMillan coach the Hawks and they literally opened games against the Knicks with Ram screens and then exits for the, to manipulate the taggers. And like, that just wasn't stuff that he was really implementing it. And some of it's just, you know, he didn't have a Trey young with the Pacers either, but um, I think he's shown some growth, but a lot of that just wasn't happening when he was coaching the Pacers. So. Yeah. And that's a fascinating point because coaches adapt and evolve too. And, and also coaching staffs. Like, I don't know, you would probably have a better idea how, cause I mean, McMillan took over as an interim. So I'm guessing it's a, a different group there and, and learn some lessons. I mean, and, and as you brought up, you know, different personnel begats different different th- schemes, and also you know the Knicks' specific defensive approach. Like I think that gave that gave the Hawks some options that maybe you don't have against everybody else. But I think that's a, it's it's a really interesting thing about the idea of also that coaches don't have to necessarily be the same in every stop. Um, defensively, I also think that. You know, context is something that I, I harp on a lot in terms of ver- for a variety of things. But one of them is I brought up that the, the Pacers took a step back and there are all these personnel issues and everything else. They took a step back defensively. They were sixth in defense two years ago. And then this year they were 14th. But one of the, you know, not the only factor. And I mean, I'm not saying like, oh, this is the, they were a fraud two years ago or anything like that. But in 1920, Pacers opponents shot below 35% from three. And that regressed to the mean, and opponents shot 37%, which is right around league average for zero, around league median, let's say. And that takes a lot of points, you know, that that put, puts, let's actually, it's not takes a lot of points off the board, it puts a lot of points on the board for this year. And it's not the only reason the Pacers, you know, the, the reason they did that, but it's, it's a good example because the general understanding is that teams can do more to control where opponents shoot 
and then they can control the success of those shots the further you get away from the rim. Oh, absolutely. Shot variance shot variance certainly matters. I mean, I would say in comparison to last year and this year, like schematically, there was just so much different, though. I mean, from the get go, Nate Bjorkren, when he was giving like press tours, was talking about how he was going to, you know, we're going to change defenses and change defenses frequently and we're going to play triangle and two and and two three and box and one and and with the shortened offseason it just never seemed like I mean I think it was questionable to do those things with two bigs in the starting lineup regardless sure. but um and to think that you're going to be able to defend like the Raptors when you don't have those same twitchy rangy defenders that Toronto has but I mean they they didn't have I don't think the like it looked half-baked it didn't look like the people knew their roles and responsibilities in zone for most of the season and I wrote that numerous times but even just in their base shell I mean he wanted them to be incredibly aggressive on ball defenders and I mean I wrote about this numerous times too I mean they went overboard with overs if they played Russell Westbrook if they played Ben Simmons if they played Draymond Green they were going to go over every screen and funnel those guys to the rim they gave up a very high opponent rim frequency and then from three because they were constantly in scramble mode they used a lot of flyby closeouts until eventually they would be giving up an open three like they didn't give up a lot of threes as you say and I don't think that three-point percentage is super controllable either but before it would have been a lot more conservative you know we're in our drop scheme and tagging and and we're going to stay home closer to shooters rather than being as aggressive in sync position and going to the nail as what they did under um Bjorken and I think a lot of that contributed to that I mean as the season went on it just didn't look like the effort was completely 100% there yeah certainly not in transition and then you know you lose Miles Turner mid-season if you're going to funnel that much stuff to the rim you know, your defense is built around him and what was an early defensive player of the year candidate, C, and then he's no longer there. And that type of system is not what you would run if Sabonis was your solo five. Like that just, you're not going to get by with his wingspan and what he is as a defender, shoveling that much stuff to the rim. And I mean, and their opponent rim frequency really didn't shift that much, even in the minutes that Miles was there, though the field goal percentage was much lower and their rebounding was bad. I mean, they were giving up tons of second chance points because they were constantly selling out and closing out on drives. So systematically, there was a lot different that I just don't think fit this roster from the get-go. It looked okay in the early months when you still had... Victor for like the first 10 or so games and you had TJ Warren as well. I mean, they were getting crushed on a lot of games by bigger wings that they just couldn't defend once those guys weren't there. And with Victor, he's somebody who, I mean, his greatest strength as a defender is his ability to roam the entire floor and still use his closing speed to get out to shooters. Karras's off-ball defense leaves quite a bit to desire. So just that one-for-one swap... I think made a difference as well. Yeah, it did. And I think that's a lot of good context. And there is an important understanding of that. You have to you have to have a scheme that works with your 100% talent, but you also have to have either a different approach or an approach that is viable when you're a little bit less healthy. Because if the entire thing is predicated on Miles Turner, not because he's particularly less durable, but just the nature of NBA basketball, and we're getting a stark... I would say depressing reminder of that in these playoffs that not everything is going to work when you're shorthanded and everything else like that. But the idea of, you know, funneling everything to the rim when your team has, well, one rim protector, we'll talk about Goga probably in a little bit. It does create those challenges because you can't run the same stuff as you said, when Sabonis is out there and when Turner's out there as the center. Yeah, and and that's some of it too. I mean, a lot of it, I would say like his approach to personnel as well as his approach to opponents, just a lot of it was just on autopilot. Like, this is how we're going to defend from game to game. And like I said, it doesn't matter if Russell Westbrook's the person coming over the pick or not. We're still going to go over because we want to instill this aggressive mentality. And then whether it's, you know, Sabonis comes in at the five 
I mean, they would change up how they guarded side pick and rolls from game to game, but it didn't always seem like it made sense with who they were playing, nor was it like, oh, Sabonis is out here. So, you know, we're going to go with more of like the Steve Clifford Orlando approach with what they would have done with Vucevic. And we're going to ice all those side pick and rolls and then maybe even trap some of them to keep that action away from the basket. Like it wasn't like it was adjustments like that. They mainly kept but the same thing. And, and I've said this stat many, many times, but I find it completely just absurd that Sabonis led the entire NBA and distance traveled on defense. Because even when he was. Yeah, yeah, that is completely insane. Yeah, even when he wasn't at the five, he was in the four, and he's in this help and fly roll up top. They have him hedge on side pick and rolls. They would do stuff where they would trap the post that would require the bigs to be using really long closeouts, and they're just, it was very busy, and it, it, a lot of what his defense looked like, I mean, they would switch him out. They wouldn't switch back in and, and non-force soft situations. So a lot of what his defense looked like this year, I think, deserves a lot of context and well as before if you looked in the numbers and games that he once he was traded in games that miles didn't play the pacers defensive rating was not near as bad as what it looked this year in games when miles didn't play i mean like i said before like they played a two-game stretch where miles had fractured his hand against the clippers and the mavericks and they don't have a lot of link to begin with. I mean, their roster is mostly loaded with combo guards and centers, and they come out and they're blitzing Luka nonstop. They have nobody to provide weak side rim protection. They don't have the cohesion to be blitzing, but they just show up and decide they're going to do that in that game. <laughs> or, you know, they're playing the Clippers and they're box and oneing. If, if it's Paul George out there or Kawhi out there, they're playing box and one, and it looks pretty adamant. Like the example I would give is, you know, they, they wouldn't protect Sabonis and solo back line or even miles so they might have it where the person helping in at the nail would be from the opposite side so then Sabonis has to chase out to the wing like that just can't be how they really wanted to set that it just looked like well go out there and play box and one and you don't really know the rules and go out there and do it and they would do some of that stuff with Sabonis when miles couldn't play in games so I think a lot of what comes with his defense while I don't think Sabonis had a great individual defensive season I think that there's a lot of reasons for why that happened yeah, and that's context is so important for those reasons because at a certain uh, you're as as analysts, what we're trying to do is explain what happened, but also try to interpret that in terms of moving forward. And we'll get into the kind of the personnel situations later, but I, I think that it is so important to understand like not only what things were, but why they were. And I mean, with with Sabonis, it's putting him in a situation to succeed. And Lim, you know players that aren't perfect players that are limited like that that's fine you know it's it's a part of it and Sabonis is an immensely talented offensive player but in some ways that requires more care like it, everything requires care but it requires more care when you have somebody who does certain things well and doesn't do other things well because it's in many ways easier to put them into really challenging spots right and then you have to look at his workload as well I mean sure. early in the season he was playing Brogdon and Bjork and I mean Bjork and Brogdon and Sabonis really big minutes to the point where through the end of the month of January I think Sabonis had played as many 40 minute games almost as he did all of last season so they're playing in big minutes in a system that really dialed up the pace especially over the back half of the year he's playing on ball more and like pitch situations and just bringing the ball up the court and doing stuff off off the ball where you're expecting him to be physical and then you're also having him travel all this distance on the defensive end like I just think that's too much for him to be able to handle unless like this summer I would suggest that he spend a lot of time doing some agility training to try to, you know, work on his hip flexibility to be able to get out to shooters and other stuff. But 
the workload early on was pretty telling that it wasn't going to be something he could do because you could see, I mean, similar to what you saw from Giannis in Game 7 where you could see he was coming out and, and looked gas and can he do what he does at a high level over more minutes? I think that's a fair question with Sabonis as well where you would see at times he would play almost the entire first quarter, which was a difference under McMillan where McMillan would be, okay, we're going to take Sabonis out at like the six-minute mark, play miles most of the first, and then we're going to bring Sabonis back into play with the bench. That reversed a little bit this year under Bjorkren to the point where it was like, okay, now it's at the end of the quarter and it doesn't look like Sabonis can really box out his guy and he's getting beat for rebounds in ways that you weren't really seeing in the prior season. And it's extremely important for coaches to tailor their rotation to these speci- to those kinds of nuances. I mean, I, I think that's part of what has worked really well for Quinn Snyder is, I mean, the way he uses Gobert, that having Gobert having a rest before that late quarter when they were at full strength that late quarter run with Mike Conley first of all that group is going to demolish what can often be bench heavy groups but also Gobert looked more fresh throughout it and not every player works that way I mean I'm closest geographically to the Golden State Warriors and Steph Curry is adamant that he prefers to play the entire first and he looks good it's not even a circum it's because of his stamina and everything else it's not like he wants to do that and then he just sucks for the last four minutes of the first like that would be a different challenge for Kerr or whoever else was coaching the team So you have to reconcile all of those things and make it work. And broadly speaking, I advocate for starting with your best players and working on down. You know, it'd be the idea of what is, and Sabonis, as, you know, beyond the all-star appearances and everything else, but he is an important one. And also you start with the larger, I'll call them structural constraints, where it's like, okay, if we play this guy longer than eight minutes in a row, things are going to really fall off. So maybe they're a little bit less of a player in certain circumstances, but you still have to consider that because once you get into that red zone, it's just not going to work out. Right. And then under Nate McMillan, I don't think anybody, I mean, everybody was right around 35 minutes. I mean, Nate McMillan, while they weren't going to be a team that rested guys for entire games in terms of load management, he did monitor minutes pretty closely of his top guys. And that was one difference is when you look at the minutes this year where Sabonis was on the floor by himself versus last year, it was like he and Miles flip-flopped roles because the Pacers really got worked and the minutes when Miles was out there by himself under McMillan. And I think some of that has to do with um, how many bench players they were out there against. I mean, Sabonis was coming back in and anchoring bench units, not to mention that he has great chemistry with Doug McDermott. The two of them have a wavelength between each other. I mean, the number one assist combo on the Pacers this year was Sabonis to Doug McDermott. So you want to match those minutes. And I think Nate McMillan probably did, despite those numbers. I mean, Doug McDermott had to start quite a few games because of injuries this year did a little bit better job matching up some of those bench units I mean there was times where Bjorken was running Jeremy Lamb at the four and just other stuff that was going to be prohibitive and some of that was injuries but some of it was just you know maybe we don't need to rethink the wheel here but um and and the three-point percentage as you mentioned is kind of noisy there too because like when Miles was out there at solo five I think that was only like 350 minutes this year but I think opponents shot like 30 percent from three yeah over that really tiny sample size. So I think some of that matters. Whereas with Sabonis, when he was out there, was it like 36%? So whether they're hitting shots or not, plus like, you know, that's just not very many minutes. But the fact that it flip-flopped that dramatically, I think is telling of what you said, that it would be better if, you know, you could get Sabonis to a spot, not necessarily in the second half, but in the first half where he's taking that early rest and then coming back in to, as a through line with bench lineups. 
I'm happy you brought up the opponent three point shooting. You know, harkening back because that it, it's such an underappreciated element when you and, and yeah, there's a lot of noise when you get into these narrower and narrower splits. But it's also important context. Like, I mean, there was a stretch when I think when McMillan took over with the Hawks that like the Hawks had given up like crazy high opponent shooting. Also coincided with when Capella came back in the lineup, and then all of a sudden it just it, it dropped. And you know, you have to reconcile what that is, but. Generally speaking, teams can do more to control the opponent's success closer to the basket. Like that is some, um, and so I thought you brought this up earlier, but to, to have the full stat out there that, you know, this is cleaning the glasses version filters out garbage time. When Miles Turner was on the floor, opponents made 58.4% of their shots at the rim. And when Miles Turner was off the floor, whatever configuration that was, opponents went from 58.4% to 63.5% around the basket. Yeah. Yeah, and I might have even guessed that was higher, which I mean, probably it was because I wasn't looking at cleaning the glass where they would have filtered out garbage time. But yeah, I mean, you can just tell that. I mean, Miles has the wingspan. He has tremendous timing. He has, he's very good at closing his closing speed when he gets back. He can do catch up blocks. I mean, that's just not stuff Sabonis is going to do. So if you're going to run the same scheme consistently when both of them are out on the floor, I would, you know, be shocked if Miles wasn't depressing that better than in the minutes when he's off the court. Exactly. And that isn't trying to, you know, criticize Demonis Sabonis. He's just not as good at doing what Miles Turner does as Miles Turner. It's not a, a, exactly a huge surprise. And I, I think that one of the other fascinating elements, kind of as we, in some ways, transition into the, you know, the personnel, we'll do, we'll kind of do both at the same time because you have to. But my, one of my biggest hopes for this past season, from let's call it Kevin Pritchard's perspective, was to get a clearer understanding of whether the Sabonis-Turner pairing was what he wanted long-term for this frontcourt. And it is a benefit for the Pacers that both of those players are not only under contract, but under reasonable contract, which means that there is not a decision inflection point that is looming, like, oh, you have to do you have to do this right now. Turner has two more years under contract. Sabonis has three after this season. And that said, I am of the firm belief that once you know moving early is better than moving late, not only because... Or I guess it's not moving if you decide you want to keep them together. Because if you think it's not a good fit, then the longer you keep them together, then you're kind of hurting your team. You're hurting You're hurting the trade value of whatever you're going to do. But also because if you think it's the wrong fit, then moving it will also make, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll give you more time to adjust and fine tune because you're probably not going to get it all in one shot. You know, you're not going to... If you want to make a trade, you're not going to move that person for exactly the right person. And your roster is just, you know, all the puzzle pieces click into place and it's it's just done. Like, that's not the way it generally works. So I think there are a couple different kind of threads on this. But the first one for me, the most basic one is, how are you feeling about Sabonis and Turner as the starting four and five for the Pacers moving forward? Oh, my favorite question. <laughs> um I think that some of it, I mean, I'm with you. I wanted this, the front office and the team as a whole to really be able to have the opportunity this, set, this season to assess the ceiling of what they had and how the pieces fit together. For me, I feel like it's been kicking the can down the road for a while now. I mean, as reporting goes, it sounds like they tried to move on from the pairing as a whole and flip miles for Gordon Hayward before the season started. And that just didn't pan out for a number of reasons, but um I think that overall it has a limited ceiling, but I mean, when people ask me at the trade deadline this question, I was of the opinion that, you know, I don't know that there's necessarily some great move out there. And that's a big part of this. Like I don't work in the front office, so I don't know what offers are out there on the table to firmly say which way to lean or what to do. But I wasn't opposed to seeing more of it because 
we hadn't really even seen the effects of the last trade yet, which was Karis Levert. And to this point, the projected starting lineup of Brogdon, Levert, TJ Warren, Miles Turner, and DeMontis Sabonis have yet to play a minute of action together. Right. So I feel like I kind of need to see how those pieces work to fully know who you could swap out. But at the same time, I don't want the Pacers to get into the same space they were in this year where if you hire a new coach and then the new coach comes in and you're like, yeah, this this just isn't working out. We're not getting anywhere. We really need a wing to be able to guard opposing wings and we're not going to be competitive against the Milwaukee's or the Brooklyn's because we don't have anybody who can reason believe in guard those guys then you've brought in a coach and you've implemented a system and then maybe you know you want to flip miles or you want to flip sabonis and the remaining system doesn't fit that other guy and then mid-season you're having to do a bunch of tinkering so for me i would hope that they can kind of make some assumptions from what they've seen develop a vision for which one of them they think is you know going to be the most competitive in today's nba and try to fill the roster around that and then find the coach who's going to best advance that vision for them rather than what felt like the reverse last year which was that from day one nate bjorkren coached the pacers to be the raptors they ran almost identical sets i chronicled a lot of that and they ran a defensive system that really didn't fit the team in the hopes of you know trying to replicate what that was so that would be my order of operations but just in terms of their fit um it's funny because when you sit down and you're like you know what would work with sabonis at solo five you're going to write down a lot of those qualities and and many of them are going to be miles turner and in the reverse if you're going to do it um you're probably i still lean toward the idea that miles is probably better off playing outside the action and then making decisions within it. I mean, he's just not the playmaker that Sabonis is. The one game I would point people to watch is when they were in Miami. They played in overtime. Sabonis had played at solo five for almost the entire fourth quarter. Karis LeVert missed an isolation at the end of the game to send it to overtime, and then Sabonis fouled out. And they had to play with Miles over those last, you know, the overtime period. And they start the game and they're running like two dribble handoffs and they both get blown and then they have to play out of pocket. And that's just not going to be Miles's game. Like the best thing about Sabonis is that he is a connector and he's a guy that's going to be able to get you to the next action. And if an opponent is switching or really doubling up on, on Karis LeVert and blitzes or whatever it is, he's going to lubricate the offense and be able to slip into four on three. So that was there. But then at the other end, they end up winning the game because Miles gets two or three key stops. Like he gets a double block on the same possession and you watch that and you know well that's not something Sabonis is going to do so the real question is like what's more important at the center position right now and the way that the league's trending is it more important to have this guy who can play make and be able to adapt to multiple types of defense or is it more important to have somebody that can be a little bit more adaptable and pick and roll and be able to protect the rim like I think when you look at some of the series in the playoffs with what happened with and I'm not suggesting at all that Sabonis is Jokic or that Miles is Rudy Gobert like there's a reason those guys are paid what they are that Jokic won MVP but those are the rough chalk outlines and I think you could see at times where Denver struggled with some of Jokic's defense which context matters who they had at the point of attack the fact that Jamal Murray wasn't out there to put stress on Chris Paul and and Devin Booker at the other end of the floor you could see that but then you watch the Jazz series and I think it would have been pretty helpful if Rudy Gobert could have done anything against the Clippers small ball lineup and tried to punish that but 
Um, it's very tough for me to make a pick. It honestly is because I would need to see what the offers are and whether I think that what they're getting in return is really going to be successful because they've struggled with both iterations. If we're being honest, like I wasn't thrilled with what I saw with miles at solo five in the playoffs against Miami. I didn't really want to see more of that and how they closed at the end of this year, which I mean, they didn't have TJ Warren or Karis Levert in that play in game, but defensively there was a lot of issues that they would need to craft a different defensive scheme. If they're going to go with Sabonis. As somebody who gets fake trades for all 30 teams, I could appreciate the nuances of it depends on what's on the table. And I think that it's such an important part of this conversation. And you could think of the variance that could exist with offers for either Turner or Sabonis should should the team have said. And it could even be, theoretically, you could think of it as context-dependent that, you know, you could move either if somebody made a unreasonably strong offer. Like, that, I could see that as a possibility for, for Pritchard in the front office. But... There's also another important point here that you that you got to actually early early in that, and there's a, a lot of substance that'd be fun to unpack. But I think that it is very hard to reconcile for a fan base, for uh, but in some ways, especially for an ownership group, because they're the ones who have to make this decision. The idea of ceiling versus floor. So I think there is a very good argument that the Turner Sabonis pairing as you as you mentioned earlier and you can correct me if i misinterpret if i'm mis- misinterpreting what you're saying is that there is a there is not a sky high ceiling meaning like probably not going to win a championship unless you have really really good other three players with with that with those two starting together but it's also hard to imagine trading that player for you know one of the two for a commensurate value and then that team being championship caliber either i, I don't think that it's the pairing necessarily that's holding them back and as has come up in a variety of circumstances including the portland trailblazers right now who also just fired their coach the championship like if, if that's how it's being considered and again it, what ownership wants and what front office wants and you know this affects what what a team prefers in a coach and everything else there are different levels of this and so if you if if they want to be a consistent playoff team you know have a and uh, you know be in that you know maybe you sometimes host a host a series or you don't want to be in that group maybe you win a series every every so often like that kind of tier i think there's a clear path to this group being good enough especially because the the talent and the idea that you could potentially move either turner or sabonis and get somebody who's just worse like that's entirely possible but a lot of so some front offices or some ownership groups really like that like that you're in the mix you can get that revenue the team's going to be consistently competitive whether it's that you want that aura you don't want to be a lottery team or you think fans are more likely to buy season tickets whatever your motivation that can work there are others that don't want that they want that would rather be in the mix for a conference finals or anything else and it's far from a guarantee to to go that route and that's that's the other nuance here is that it's i i can say what i would want if i were an owner of course i can do that but honestly, that's not particularly relevant because I'm not the Pacers owner and pretty good odds that I'm not going to be. Right. And and the Pacers, I think, have a pretty long history. And, and some of this has seemed to be leaking out in reports that, you know, they don't really want to take steps back in terms of, you know, what you mentioned. Maybe you assess all this and you just think, you know, we're going to plateau with any of these paths, like with both of them or one of them, you know, whatever it is, and that they might want to go full on rebuild. I don't see that as something that the Pacers are going to do. So then it's a, a test of, you know, I think that the goal would probably be they want to get into the playoffs and hope to take steps forward from there. So can you make a trade where you're going to take a step forward? And if not, you know, I think that this team, like you said, I think they can be a playoff team if they're fully healthy. I think that they might be able to get out of the first round, depending upon, you know, could you get into like 
the four five hole and have a you know a preferred matchup i don't see from what i've seen this year you know i'd have to there'd have to be significant scheme changes for me to think that they could be competitive against the bucks or the nets in a series in a second round series i think a lot would need to shift there a lot of a lot of luck would need to fall into their favor but you know I don't know. Like, it's exactly what you're saying. Like, without being the owner and knowing what the ultimate goal is there, being able to say what they need to do is a whole different matter. But I'm with you in that I think that the pairing and what they have right now has a limited ceiling. The question is, is if you make a move, is your floor going to be worse? You know, I think that my sense from the fan base in general, if, if this context matters, is that they're getting pretty restless with it. I mean, most of the people on our message boards and that I see on Twitter already to move on even to the point where I've seen people be like, you know, just flip one of the two bigs. And if you have regrets in two years, I guess you do. Like (laughs) that's, and and I think what's, what's interesting about that. I've used the threshold before of, I call it the haunting test, which is basically would trading player X potentially haunt your franchise? You know, like, would it be a, and, and sometimes those are, you couldn't have seen it coming. You know, like it could be a circumstance. Like I would say for me, Victor Oladipo in those best years before he, you know, before the injuries and everything else, like he was a significantly better player than either the Orlando, especially the Orlando Magic probably thought, but also the, the, the Thunder when they traded him and, you know, they got Paul George out of it, whole different kettle of fish. But my inclination, and I like both Turner and Sabonis as quite a bit as players, is that they're not going to be they're not going to be that that threshold like i don't think either of them is going to jump into the all nba like you know best or even second best player on a title team type type of range and so that does narrow your downside but it doesn't necessarily narrow it that much because you still have to actually have a good team and so the like if you replaced either of those players with somebody who was 75% as good the pathway to any semblance of relevance is significantly lesser significantly weakened, especially when you consider that the Pacers don't have a ton of financial flexibility. You know, they they, they have a good team and they're in a, a decent place because they're not also prohibitively expensive, but making up for a downgrade, should that end up being the case, is not easy for them. Right. I mean, and that's just a piece this summer too. I mean, they, like you said, they don't have a lot of spending uh, capacity this summer and they have Doug McDermott and TJ McConnell, both who were key pieces this year in their own regards, are free agents. And I don't really see a path that's likely that they're bringing back both of them, though they both say that, you know, they enjoyed their time in Indiana would like to return. And and some of this goes back to the order of operations once again, because if I was the front office, I would want to have a sense of, you know, which one of these two bigs are we leaning toward just on that decision alone? Because if I'm bringing Sabonis back, I probably will want Doug McDermott as a movement shooter and to replicate what their chemistry was. If I'm not bringing back Sabonis, then maybe I'm not quite as concerned about that, but I am going to be concerned about how this roster is going to have playmaking given how much they funneled through Sabonis. So I'm probably going to want to try my best to retain TJ McConnell, at least so he can come off the bench and, and do what he does so well with his court vision and his ability to probe and keep the offense moving. So, I mean, I feel like all of these decisions, like that's the matrix that they have to start with. Like they need to know what is our opinion with this starting front court, even if, as you say, like even if even if neither of them is going to develop into an all NBA top three center, it still, I think, dictates a lot of what else they're going to do, even down to some degree, the coaching search. Absolutely. And for the salary part of this, the the context that I would add is that roughly speaking, if the Pacers keep all of their players on roster, you know, I'm assuming they're gonna they're gonna pick up that team option on Edmund Sumner. Two point three million seems totally reasonable to me for what he for what he has been. 
And if you disagree, I'd love to hear it. But um, I, I think that the rough estimate that you want to use for the Pacers is that they have 13 to 15 million to use for any purpose while staying under the luxury tax. And that 13 to 15 million can go in a lot of different directions. That could be McDermott, McConnell, probably not both. The mid-level exception would be another option because if they want to use the non-taxpayer, that's 9.5 million as we anticipate it right now. There are theoretically, including a Sabonis or Turner trade, there are ways that the, the Pacers could cut salary. But one challenge that Pritchard has to deal with is that they don't really have any totally logic, like easy ways to do it. Now, maybe Jeremy Lamb ends up being the clearest way because the Pacers' most expensive players, and they aren't that expensive, are players they want to keep in almost all these circumstances. Like you're not going to do that. And then they don't really have many kind of low value salary dump type of things where it's like you could you some teams have a player who makes eight million dollars and you could give up a you know a second round pick or in some cases a first to offload it pretty much everybody the Pacers are currently paying is somebody that if they're healthy they intend to have as a part of the roster right I would say that there's probably room for some consolidation and and like what you said with Edmund Sumner like I will not push back on that at all I think Edmund had a really good close to the end of the season in terms of you know it looks like his shooting mechanics have improved to a degree he's very active in the corners as a cutter um one of their better perimeter defenders and I mean he was one of the people that could actually float between schemes pretty well and now this will be a different system but when you look at Jeremy Lamb I mean the health is certainly a factor and he did improve his three-point shooting I know he mentioned that he spent a lot of the time while he was um, rehabbing the ACL injury just sitting in a chair and then progressing to you know just standing and shooting and you could see those products but defensively he leaves quite a bit to desire but I could see a scenario where you might be trying to uh just consolidate what the bench rotation would be where you might play, you know, like a McConnell, Edmund Sumner, Justin at the three O'Shea Brissett, who really popped for them late because I know that, you know, they would benefit from having somebody in that backup four role so that Justin Holiday isn't doing it anymore and he's not getting as much wear and tear. So then it's kind of a question of where would Jeremy Lamb actually fit on this roster? And especially like in the reverse, even if you don't keep McConnell and you keep Doug, like there's not a clear place for him there even though he's probably arguably their best player to come off the bench and be able to you know get a shot and get into the seams a little bit better like you can understand the fit of those two other lineups so I could see a scenario where they might try to see if if there's a team that could use some of his scoring off the bench or maybe his defense wouldn't show up quite as glaring as it did for the Pacers and in his defense like I mentioned earlier I mean there was scenarios where he was guarding Giannis. He was guarding Zion Williamson at times this year. Like, you know, they just they had enough injuries. And with Justin as a starter, they just didn't have anybody to play it back up for. And for whatever reason, Bjorkren was very hesitant to be giving those minutes to Jakar Sampson or to Keelan Martin off the bench who are a little bit sturdier. So that's one consolidation move I could see them making. But again, I don't know how interested opposing teams would be in taking that on, given what his health was this year. Right. And how much would the Pacers, let's say, be willing to give up to get that added flexibility? And there are certain circumstances, like if it's a second round pick to open up five million and that five million allows you to keep McDermott and McConnell and you want to with the vision of the team, maybe that's worth it. You know, like you could get into those sort of circumstances. To me, the other salary kind of sal- salary centric, though, it's many things other too. potential shift would be Aaron Holiday because Holiday's making about four million next season and his place with the Pacers depends on these negotiations too now if you if you think Aaron Holiday can step in and be Malcolm Brogdon's backup and potentially play with him and you know Holiday started 33 games in 1920 part, part of that due to injury and you know Levin 
But I wanted, instead of starting with kind of like what you do with, with Holiday, it's just how would you evaluate him after three seasons? Right. I mean, I think so much about him is somewhat murky. Like, I think at the base at this point, he's an undersized combo guard. Like, I don't feel super comfortable with him making reads out of the pick and roll. I think that he drew like a total of or took like three free throws out of the pick and roll this year. Like, he has a tendency and some of it stems from, you know, he was in a spot up role and he starts on the right side of the floor a lot, wants to put the ball down on his left and then ends up using his body to try to shield. And then he leans into floaters because when he gets into the basket, it's just very muffled and, and he doesn't, his finishing is not very good. So um, I don't feel great about him running, like I said, offense. But at the same time, when you look at what he did this year under Bjorker and the system itself should have been a fit for him. But then he starts the season, and after T.J. Warren gets hurt, I mean, he's effectively starting at the three. Yeah. Like, he was guarding, like, Mikel Bridges in games, which, I mean, that's just... He doesn't have the link to be doing that and to be closing out. And then he's not really ever running offense off the bench because TJ McConnell's doing it. Now, the prior year, those lineups worked pretty decently, even though they were small. But the Pacers never really got to the grouping that was TJ, Aaron, Doug, Justin, and Sabonis off the bench. Like, they just couldn't get there because of where injuries were. So his role got yanked around quite a bit. And then once Edmund Sumner got minutes and started to pop... I mean, he was the one that was getting the nod in the starting lineup or off the bench, and I think for pretty good reason. So if I'm the Pacers, because of what his role was, I don't feel like I fully know what he is, but my general sense is what I said. He's an undersized combo guard. I don't know that I would feel very confident if you don't have TJ McConnell back and it's Aaron running a unit with like, you know, Doug, Justin, O'Shea, and Goga, where it's going to be a lot of spot-up shooting and not guys you're going to create for themselves, that he's somebody that's going to do that with a lot of consistency. Maybe if there was more consistency in his role and his minutes, he would have shown me more. But to this point, I think it's fair to question it. Agreed on pretty much all fronts. Uh, the way that I would synthesize it is that I don't have belief that Aaron Holiday can reliably create good offense for himself and others. Now, can he be a support player on a, on a team? Potentially. But doesn't create enough separation. You brought up his finishing around the basket. That has been a big disappointment. Under 50% in the restricted area this year. Also doesn't get to the free throw line. Some of that, as you brought up, his role. Not necessarily him, but also I mean, he's just not generating those kinds of shots. And Holiday, that means he's somebody who could fit in, but not somebody that you necessarily prioritize. And sort of in a weird way, paralleling the point that I made about Turner and Sabonis, if another team disagrees with that evaluation, the one that I just made, and values Aaron Holiday and, you know, the the idea of having match rights and his qualifying offer will be high. So if the team, you know, if for that's not for, that's for 22-23. So it would be a, you know, it would be a jump. And he's not like a, you know, like there's sometimes you see those type of players get traded, but he's not like, you know, Marco Fultz was the number one pick and Orlando got him in a different circumstance. But it, so I would say if another team is interested in Holiday in that capacity, Absolutely. I mean, I think they could better use that four million than than holiday. And, you know, if, if the luxury tax is a hard line, which kind of seems like it is, especially when you consider where the paces are. And so that's that's where it would be like I could see holiday being improving in time, becoming a better pick and roll operator. But also he turns 25 before the start of next season. And maybe I think he'll be a better player at 28 than he is at 25. But how much better? 
I mean, I think it'll be more modest. And I don't, I, I definitely think that there could be a rotation player in there, but probably not a starter and probably not a starter is not somebody that you need to prioritize. Yeah, I mean, that's about where I'm at with it. The unfortunate thing for the Pacers is I think that there was rumblings about a year ago that there was teams that might have been willing to give a first for him. Oof. I don't know what the situation was at the trade deadline this year, but I kind of my sense was that they were willing to just, you know, kind of leave the roster where it was and assess things and 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 maybe wait out the TJ McConnell decision. If 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 he's not somebody that they retain, then I guess you already have Aaron under contract, but I lean toward you and that I see him as like, yeah, maybe he works out as a rotation player in a backup role, but I certainly don't see him as somebody that's going to be a starter now. Maybe he completely proves me wrong and really does a lot this summer to improve what his reads were, but I mean, you could even see some of that and, you know, take summer league with a grain of salt but when he was out there i mean there's just times where my assessment of him would be that like he can be a boat paddling against the current like he'll make a predetermined read or the read that's most obvious it's like he's gonna make the most difficult one and um yeah so if there was a way to move on from that and get like a second or just to offload it and they think that they can retain tj mcconnell then i think that's the path that you probably go Let's jump to one of the other Pacers young players, Goka Patate. This was his second season, the 18th pick in the 19 draft. And it was surprising, to say the least, when Indiana took him high, when you considered that they already had two centers. But A, you know, there's some definitely some interesting players on, on the board then. Matisse Thibel has found a role, though, he, you know, he how big that role is going to be, Brandon Clark and everything else. How are you feeling about Patate now two years in? So this year, I would say, like, I mean, the year before he was dealing with some knee injuries as a rookie, and then um, he just, you know, he wasn't getting playing time. Nate McMillan wasn't somebody who was really going to lean into that. When they got into the bubble, because of the knee and him coming back, like, he didn't even play in the playoffs. They were leaning to Jakar Sampson and back up five, and when when they retained Jakar, I was like, well, I guess this is fine as depth, but I'm not going to be, you know, super thrilled if he's taking minutes from Goga in that backup role. About midway through the season, Goga started getting those minutes, and um his operation in the pick and roll ballet i think still needs some work his screening he's somebody who's very over eager to dive to the basket so he doesn't really hold and make contact and then spatially sometimes when he's setting off ball screens they'll be very close together or he just absolutely whiffs and can like run in a circle and their stagger connected to a stagger and he may not make contact on any of those so then when he's getting to the basket it's harder for drivers to finish or you know whatever when he's on the floor but the one thing i will say about his growth is he's still not shooting the three well but some of the offense that bjorkren incorporated where they would run you know like a ghost screen on the side and then they'd get a 45 cut for like tj mcconnell to attack and then there'd be an open three as those are really easy shots for him to have ability to hit and he didn't shy away from taking them and two like if there was dribble penetration his understanding of space in general and where he needed to fill in the perimeter and like a five out roll got a lot better than where it was a year ago where you would have seen him sometimes like even as a roller like you know the guy's snaking in front of him and he might literally bump into the guy like just his overall understanding and then as a rim protector his block rate was up And I would say defensively, he's like either doing things like he's going to catch your attention for either reasons, good or bad. Like he's going to catch your attention for blocking shots, but he also picks up a lot of fouls. And then sometimes he's out on the perimeter and he actually doesn't shuffle too bad. Like you don't feel terrible if he, you know, you might need to blitz with him. I mean, over in Europe, he did a lot of switching and a lot of stuff in zone and that wasn't always bad, but then there might be a possession where, you know, like Tyler Hero stands him up and he's just stuck in space and gets blown right by. Like, I don't think he's a guy that like, if you're running a small, a small unit that you'd be like, oh, let's play Goga Patadze out there. But in terms of 
the difference between the Turner Sabonis pairing and like picking, you know, like Sabonis and you're going to retain Goga is there's not going to be pressure to be starting Goga alongside Sabonis. Like that would be a wrinkle in terms of, you know, they did this towards the end of the season. They're playing the Sixers and it behooved them to be playing a little bit more big and it panned out. So they, they closed the game with two of them, but um, that would be in a bit role. And, and I would feel better. I guess my overall sense is I feel better about his progress now a year later than I did as a rookie. Whereas at the trade deadline a year ago, I'm like, oh, they can't move Turner or Sabonis because he's just completely not ready. He looks more ready now than he did then. Yeah, I'm definitely more positive on Patate than I was a year ago. However, I'm still not all the way there that he will be a starter, I, like starting caliber center and I, ignoring the context of everybody else that's on the Pacers, just like in the abstract, like, is this guy potentially a top 30 center in the NBA? Like, I see how it could happen. Patate, as you brought up, like his rim protection is intriguing and the offensive game, like he, I, I think his, the mechanics of his three-point shot are looking better and, you know, he can, can take advantage of some mismatches and everything else, but that like that is to me the most interesting part question with Patate is I mean you, the reason you draft somebody in in the teens whether they fit your scheme or, or whether they fit your personnel or not is is that you think that there's a chance that they could become a starter and so how I would phrase it like with Holiday I'm pretty confident he won't be starting caliber with Patate I'm open to the possibility but I'm not expecting it and that would sum up my thoughts pretty much to a T like I don't know that I would feel I mean just based on what he does like right now his role is mainly you know trailer three spot up three in the dunker spot and he's gotten more aggressive carving out space and being able to get offensive rebounds and putbacks like I think he attempted more putbacks in his small amount of minutes than Miles which granted Miles plays more on the perimeter and that's more Sabonis when the two of them are out there but um yeah I think I would need to see a lot more of him as a as a rim roller and what he can do interpretive wise I mean I one area another thing that I think he grew in is is when he runs a DHO, he's more apt to make to create space with contact in those settings. And if that gets overplayed, you'd see like a diet diluted version of Sabonis being able to do like get stuff and being able to counter up top a little bit. So that's encouraging, but I would lean towards him being a backup center. That's the way that I view him. So I think we can kind of end this where we started. We talked about what you what the Pacers should want in a coach and we can talk about it in the abstract, but also we can get a little bit more a little bit more tangible. Are there people on the market that you think are particularly compelling good fits for where the Pacers are and where they're going? Right. So this is the really hard question because obviously the Pacers took a pretty big risk swinging with Nate Bjorkren and and some of his like I don't I don't want this to sound super derogatory, but some of the like galaxy brain stuff that he tried to implement, like reinventing the wheel at times. So like, no, I, I, th- think, I think it's totally fair from what I saw, and you know them far better than I. Um, I don't think that they're they're not going to go with a. I would be shocked if they went with another first time hire or went with an assistant again. I think they're going to go with a proven entity who's experienced with experience. But this is where it's tough for a person like me. Like when I write these profiles, I'm writing them very much from the perspective of like, okay. If they hired Steve Clifford, here's how this defense might work based on what he did, you know, with Vucevic or, you know, looking, I wrote one here recently about Terry Stotts and some of the stuff that they could do, you know, with mover blocker and that they haven't used a lot of flare screens with the Pacers and, you know, using Sabonis in a setting where you would connect a flare to a ball screen. Bigs aren't going to be sagging off as much in that situation and just running more pick and roll in general and how that could open up stuff with Karis LeVert. Like, I can touch on those topics, but given the reasons that they let go of Bjorkren, which the stated ones were, um, you know, human management, and that it wasn't just some disgruntled players, it sounds from everything that I understand that this was extending to coaching staff and employees with the Pacers and throughout the organization that 
and needs to be somebody that's going to be able to come in and settle that locker room. I mean, Kevin Pritchard basically said in the post, uh, uh, the presser announcing that Nate Bjorken wouldn't be returning, that they don't have any vocal leadership in the locker room right yeah. now. They had to challenge guys to do that. So this is a coach that's going to have to step in and do all of those types of things. And I think that coaching is a lot more than coaching. Sometimes the X's and O's aren't the most important thing. And that kind of feels like where the Pacers are to a sense. Like I definitely don't want to go back. Not that X's and O's don't matter. Cause I think what Bjorken did defensively had a negative impact on the Pacers this year, but so did some of the behind the scenes stuff. And maybe if you're getting better buy-in and effort, maybe the defense doesn't look quite as bit as it did. So that's a big part of it. So for me to formally have an answer to that question, this is going to sound like a total cop out, but I would need to be involved in those interviews. Like I would need to know what type of people are these? Is this, is this a personality that's going to mesh well with the personalities that they already have? And that's going to, you know, settle some of what they've had going down like a steady hand. And the one difference is I wrote in the Terry Stotts piece, he's talked publicly about having a very participatory management approach and that he's going to delegate work and listen to his assistants and that the entire organization is a team. And from what was reported to Bjorken, that sounds like a pretty uh, stark contrast and that he wasn't, you know, delegating work to people that were below him and that you could see him in huddles where he wasn't really allowing assistants to have much of a role beyond just like him coaching from his iPad and dictating what things were going to be to players. So, you know, that's something, but I, I can't fully answer it because I don't, I don't know enough about these people on a personal level, which to me feels like the most important piece for the Pacers right now. It is. And I'm guessing, just, just guessing that if you had the decision-making power, you'd probably want to talk to the players who had previous experience with your coaching candidates to see how it went. Maybe yeah, I mean, seems like you a good might. idea. You might, which they, they said, and TJ Warren said that they did in fact do that. I mean, they, they pushed back against that part, but obviously it was reported differently. So this is why I said it's very hard to talk about the Pacers over the last two months because there is so many rumors and reports going around that it's hard to know what's up from what's down. Well, here's here's the other part of it, though. If the TJ Warren, Nate Bjorken prior experience was so bad, and it's in some ways it reflects poorly on the Pacers front office, whether or not they asked the questions, because if they asked and he said, and he was honest, and they didn't consider it, that's unfortunate. You know, like that runs, and if they didn't ask, that's also bad. You know, you kind of run into that circumstance. So the, the, you could argue that the best case scenario for the organization is that they asked and TJ Warren didn't say the truth. And you know TJ better than I do, but I haven't spent a ton of time around him. But I can't imagine that if they, that if they asked him, he would sugarcoat it. Like there's no, there's no incentive for him to do so. Yeah, I mean, he's a pretty soft-spoken guy. I would think that, you know, it's tough to know where he would have led there, but he doesn't really seem like somebody who wants to be in charge of decisions, though, either. Sure. Like, he's he seems like somebody who would want to cede that back. I mean, I know that Kevin Pritchard mentioned, like, he was directly asked, are players going to be consulted? And he was basically like, you know, if, if somebody, I mean, referencing what you said, he's like, if somebody has past experience with a coach that we're thinking about, we might ask. But beyond that, it's going to be the franchise's decision. But I think you make an astute point and that it was reported in the aftermath that the Pacers had trouble building the assistant staff after Nate Bjorken was hired and that people didn't want to come work there, which, I mean, you can make the argument. I'm not going to suggest that Indiana is a glamour market, but I think the coaching jobs are, you know, something that people in general want and there's not that many to go around. So if you're having a hard time getting assistants to come and work for the Pacers, that leads me to believe that there were, in fact, red flags at its prior stops and that those rumblings had been whispered around the NBA of like, you know, I, I don't really want to go work with that guy. So... Um, it, it is. There are not so many NBA assistant jobs that people who are talented right. are just like, 
oh no, I'm good. (laughs) I'm happy happy where I am. Like that, whether we're talking front office or coaching or obviously players, that's, that's not something that happens. So it it can be, it can be a sign. And yeah, I, I I wonder exactly what they're going to prioritize because that, and I mean, that is the, to me, one of the most fascinating parts of, of a coaching search is that you aren't at a certain point, the decision makers have to take the abstract and make it real. And so you are dealing with individual human beings who have certain strengths and certain weaknesses. And that can be, and those can change. We brought this up with Dave McMillan over time. And so part of what you're doing is you're identifying somebody that makes sense. But I mean, in an ideal world, and this is, I think, what Pritchard was going for in the Bjorkman hire, and it didn't work out, is somebody who can grow and improve and build build these relationships with the franchise. And that doesn't have to be what it always is. You know, you can always hire and hire like Mike D'Antoni for a couple of years. Like that, that is an option. I'm not saying it's going to happen there. But the the idea that a coach and broadly speaking, their staff, though, I think of those those things as being connected in a, in a certain way of of that you can't get somebody who's going to do everything because it just has to be a single person is is so fascinating right and that's something that they definitely touched on i mean i don't know how much like the national uh attention has been focused on this but and when they moved on from nate mcmillan they didn't retain any of those assistants and dan burke had been coordinating the defense for the pacers for years and according to reports was told like not that he was fired but just that they were going to be going in a different direction so dan burke moves on to the sixers and then they don't really i mean the approach to what they were doing with assistance is that and i guess this is what nick nurse does as well that they wanted multitaskers who were going to do you know multiple jobs not necessarily that they were going to be titled as you know a defensive coordinator or an offensive coordinator sure and now this go around I think that there's been much more emphasis on um, Kevin Pritchard basically said, like, we're going to identify, I mean, what you said, we're going to identify the strengths and the weaknesses of the coach that we hire and hire assistants who are going to help him with the things that he is weak at, as in, you know, Terry Stotts hasn't had the best record with defense up in Portland. And I think a lot of that has to do with personnel, but that's an entirely different conversation, but that they would go find an assistant coach that would be the defensive coordinator. If they went with Steve Clifford out of Orlando, I'm confident that they would try to make an effort to, hire somebody that would do some of the stuff with the offense. So I think that they're going to try to build a more balanced staff than what they had with Bjork. And I think that's going to be a departure in what they do in this particular search from last year. Yeah, I think that's a, a great way of putting it. Um, anything else that you think we should discuss that you feel the feel this conversation would be incomplete without? No, I mean, I think that I'm, I'm very impressed with your questions. It really made me have to consolidate my thoughts. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've been fascinated with the Pacers for a couple of years. So I think it's, um, and in these conversations, I mean, that's, that's part of the fun of it is also just, you know, getting your thoughts on it and, and everything else. So, uh, thank you so much for taking time. It's been a pleasure. You too. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Caitlin Cooper for taking the time to come on. You can read her great work at Indie Cornrows. That's the SB Nation blog, but also IndieCornrows.com. And you can follow her on Twitter at C2 underscore Cooper. That's C, the number two, then an underscore, then C-O-O-P-E-R. Really enjoyed having her on. And I love these in-depth conversations on a specific team. And the Pacers doing so right now, where they have a lot of decisions to make, is particularly compelling and really enjoyed Caitlin's inside. I think she does great work. That's why I recommend you checking out what she writes and what she tweets. And this is a really fun, fascinating time recording this on Monday. The draft lottery will be tomorrow. So there will be a lot of ripple effects and ramifications there that we'll have to kind of see. And we'll, of course, talk about that on Real GM Radio and also the other stuff I do. If you want to support this podcast, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode. That is particularly useful for Real GM Radio because 
It will never come out on a specific day. It just depends on my time and my guest time, and that's when it's going to be. So whatever podcast player you use, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you want to be, you you should be able to subscribe there. And if you can't, let me know. Also, helping other people find the show. That can be a rating and a review in your podcast player. That can also be word of mouth, saying on social media or to somebody, hey, you like this episode, you like this podcast in general. This show's been around a long time, but it still helps people find it, so that's really exciting. And you can also check out my other work, Nate Duncan and I are still doing Dunked On, Dunked On Prime, so public episodes on Sunday night slash Monday mornings, and then Dunked On Prime is for the rest of the weekend, ad-free versions of the Sunday pods, and we're going to be getting into off-season previews, free agency, the draft, all that kind of work, so it's a great time to subscribe to Dunked On Prime, and Nate and I are doing the NBA cast, which is our live broadcast. We'll be doing, I would say, roughly three games a week. I think that's a good proxy for the conference finals. We'll have to see, though, if we don't think, if we don't think a game is worthwhile, we probably won't do it, and and we'll, of course, do the finals, you know, when when that comes into play. Should have some written work in the near term, have a couple things in the process. Still, I'm doing well recovering from my collarbone, but still working my way back. And uh, also, you know, with the lottery coming up, I'm sure I'm sure there'll be things that we learn from that, and that will inspire some some collaborative pieces as well. If you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is a promise. I do it every day before I go to sleep. And I, tr- I want to be better about responding, but... I'm not the greatest at it. I will acknowledge that. But the point is to send me feedback and uh, I will try to get back to you if I can. But I, I'm telling you what it is. I'm being very straightforward. And Real GM Radio will be back next week. Don't know who the guest will be. Don't know exactly what the topic will be, but I'm already looking forward to it. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.